welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Okay, hello. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are and whenever you are. My name's Kevlin Henney. I'm here at GoTo Amsterdam 2022, um, which uh, is a conference that has been postponed since 2020. Um, finally happening, and I am joined here by Fred George. Fred, tell us a bit about what you're up to. Well, I'm kind of doing my retirement work, which is go in there, make some trouble some places. Uh, a little bit of training, a little bit of development, uh, make those transformations, and then move on to somebody else. Uh, I think that's a, that, I think that seems a fair summary, and certainly how I've always remembered you. Um, and uh, it's nice to know that that's not changing. Um, and uh, this morning, you actually gave a talk on sabotaging a, a transformation, uh, and not with the intent of sabotaging, but understanding how these things happen. Um, and so, I guess. You've seen a fair few and been a part of a fair few transformations. And transformation is a very nebulous word sometimes. Well, yeah, almost a quarter of a century now, just in, in the Agile space. Uh, which means there's a lot of opportunity to try things out, uh, a lot of opportunities to fail. And you know, what's been really appreciated, disappointing, even surprisingly disappointing, is how many times the transformations haven't stuck. Uh, yeah, I, there's a, there is a sort of almost kind of like, there's almost like an elastic band that kind of pulls a lot, a lot of organizations back to where they were. Some it sticks, some it doesn't. Now, how much of that is consultancy cynicism? How much of that is just that kind of, I don't know, um, organizational homeostasis and, you know. I like to think that I, I always expect it to backslide when you walk away, because um, you're providing a lot of insight at many different levels to a client. Uh, and how to get this thing done and what can possibly go wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's just you're not there in a constant day-to-day situation monitoring it and, and, and basically uh, interfering with the interference to some degree, uh, yeah. sheltering that interference back out. Uh, so I expected some bit of backsliding, but it's almost like I'm, I want to stretch the elastic band, but I don't want it to be able to go back to original. I want it to be stretched out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So that some of that stuff sticks. Uh, one of the things I'm finding is, and it's particularly fun and enjoyable, is, is the particularly from a program perspective, they're, they're very happy in this style of working. That I'm leaving behind this joy of programming again. That's something that they've often lost. Uh, and, and to some degree, if, they try, if the company tries to backside all the way back where they came from, these programmers will walk away. They've now tasted the forbidden fruit. They've, they've seen what fun looks like. And they're not going to go back to sort of be, being told that this is what you got to do, this is where you do it in, you sit in your cube and just get it done. Here's the schedule. Um, they won't go back to that, uh, not the good ones. I think that's, I think that's a really interesting, well, there's a couple of interesting points there. I, mean, I think particularly that idea of 
stretching beyond where they are now with the understanding it'll probably relax back a bit but not all the way you know it's kind of like the tide coming in each yes. wave takes it a little further up the beach you know it rolls back a bit but the next wave takes it further and so on but also that idea of um, showing people what uh, what good or fun looks like and I think that is something that we often undervalue I think there's a lot of distractions that we have um, and I know that um, this is, came out of a conversation with uh, Steve Freeman a while back where he sort of said a lot of people have never seen what a good project can look like or feel like they've not felt that so it's very difficult when somebody gets up there and says you could do this it feels abstract and remote as opposed to something that's first person and when you've had that that's a very different different story isn't it yeah, and, and I, 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 was, I sort of had that when I started working in small talk and, and was hanging around with people that really understood how to use build objects. Um, basically, a very painful five years as I was coming out of you know, a couple of decades of waterfall thinking, um, trying to get into that way of thinking. Um, but I was having more fun all the time. And then when, when uh, Kent and Ward and those guys unveiled this sort of agile practices, and it was back in, just a back and front of a piece of paper. Mm. It wasn't even a book at that point. It was like, oh my God, everything makes sense that they're saying. And I go back and try it, and, and it, the fun level goes all the way to the top. Yeah. Now I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, and why would everyone work differently? So I think that's a, an interesting point there about that idea of the, the, the fun. In other words, I think we get drowned or distracted by productivity um, and so on. Although that could be, you know, there are various metrics that can sometimes tell us how we're doing and. Uh, but be drawn towards them too strongly or mistaking them for the work, as it were, rather than the actual the joy of the work. And I think that, that's very, I think that's very um, similar to my understanding and my feeling when I look at Ward's work and Kent's work, and it's just like, oh, well, this is completely different. This is quite enjoyable. That could be quite fun. That could be quite enjoyable. There's a different purpose to my work. And I think it's very easy to lose that, I think, when people enter the industry. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of mentioned that, you know, I mean, programmers don't come to work today to write a bug. Yeah. And yet it happens. And usually it happens because of basically process breakdowns, uh, not something they are intentionally doing. And so you want to think about it from that perspective. What, what, keeps, what's, what gets them motivated? What makes them happy? Um, and doing something productively every day. I mean, you're kind of after that psychological flow, you know, that sort of magic yeah. point where they're, they're focused on all these aspects. Um, and I think this process sort of brings that to forefront, uh, where you can sort of work in your favorite style at your pace and you're not sort of dictating the pace of your rest of your colleagues or being held up by them either. You can run sort of at your natural pace in these environments. It's a very personal kind of way of looking at it, which I think uh, is, is very interesting, very divorced from the very, I guess, the common perception of, of processes. But I guess there's another aspect to processes which I think is interesting, and again comes back to transformations. If somebody says, hey, we need an agile transformation, that's normally Sometimes it's a cover for something else. Um, there's a lot of things that that might actually mean. There are the words agile transformation, and then there's what's actually going on. Maybe it's um, a, a re just a reorganized, good old-fashioned reorganization for headcount reasons, or maybe there is some objective that has been not well articulated, but somebody says, well, they pin their hopes on this idea of an agile transformation. I mean, maybe more, not everybody. I'm a little more cynical than that. I think you just can't get a job as a CTO unless you say you can do Agile. Now, whether it's true or not, it's irrelevant. But you're going you're to paint yourself as, I understand how to do Agile, bring, hiring me to do this role. You can't say, I don't believe in Agile. You, that, just, that closes the door completely. But by and large, they don't know how to do Agile. Uh, yeah. Not at the engineering practice level. I think at some of the management level, a lot of this stuff clicks with them. Um, 
the engineering practices are kind of foreign to them, but certainly the management practices make a lot of sense. And yeah. executives can glom onto that. It's, it's completely neglecting the engineering practices where I find the most clients. Um, they can hold the stand-ups, they can add the retrospectives, yeah. they can do the sort of ceremony associated with that that's an important ceremony, but it doesn't really hit at the kernel of how to make the programmers more productive themselves. I guess that it's kind of that idea that they, they see that and assume that that's all there is. As it were, it's very easy to perceive something. You know, in, in the distance, there's the there's the engineering practices, but here are the things I understand. So I focus on those, and we ha- we are drawn to those. But the and that actual... creates a success model for things like scrum masters that yeah. come in. People that are process experts, they can communicate that to executives, and they say, "Yeah, I mean, everything you're saying, I want to do. So let's bring you in." They still have ne- they don't realize they're neglecting the engineering practices in parallel. Yeah, and that I think that, that there's a couple of things that come out of that, which I think is interesting. So first of all, there's this point about job titles um, and therefore employability um, uh, uh, in that sense. There is a market for that. There's also another element there, and this morning you gave a kind of contrast between different stats. Um, you know, uh, I think it was, was it McKenzie? You know, basically an observation, Agile gives you kind of like a 13% edge. Okay, um, that's a very precise number, and it's just, but it's still relatively small. And then you have uh, and then you have somebody like Jeff Sutherland saying, yeah, you can go hyper-productive, you get a factor of four. And there's clearly a disparity between um, uh, these, these figures. And clearly that's not, that's, you know, what's happened is there's some kind of industry mean effect that is around the, the process expertise, as it were, where it stops there. And then there's something else. And it's that engineering practice, it's that team, it's that personal aspect that seems to be yeah, the, the magic source. Yeah, you, you just can't sort of push that down from above. I mean, when, when you're a manager and you want to make some of this stuff happen, you start putting rules in place. You start putting checkpoints in place. You start, you're trying to manage the process to make it occur. Where you add an agile coach thinking they're going to stir the pot with that. Um, rather than almost walking down and talk to the programmers. Um, I remember it was a lecture by one of the guys, the Ford executives, who basically was taught the, sort of the, the lean thinking uh, back then. And, and the idea was you go down, the, the executives should go down to the floor and, and listen to the people. Well, they go down to the floor and they start telling the people how to do it better. And the guy said, no, 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 you're supposed to listen, not talk. You're, it's the other way around. And I think we have the same phenomenon with our programmers. We're trying to tell them how to do it instead of turn around listening to them yeah. and sort of having that knowledge flow back. And then acting to their knowledge, things we can do as executives that they can't do themselves, removing the barriers and the like. And that I think that there's a there's a kind of recurring theme in your in your work and your talks um, uh, that certainly dates back to, to where I reckon I first saw you was giving a talk at Go to Aarhus in 2011 um, on programmer anarchy and that idea of very much it's just like we're working from the ground up here and the, 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 here are the people that are producing ultimately producing the software and if if our business is related to the software then that's clearly a very important point it's not about it's not about the layers that might come above it it's actually it's grounded in that um, and that seems to have kind of continued and you've kind of expressed that through architecture you've expressed that through a number of different ways well, it's, it's trying to find new and better ways to sort of get that focus. Uh, I mean, relabeling it sometimes, but also getting a little more clever about, you know, how do you overcome some of these barriers that people put up in, in the way. Uh, certainly getting the executives on board what the effect of this change is going to be. Uh, it's been one of, my, one of the insights I saw is you just really have to get the executives to understand the social change you're making to their organization. 
And most executives will welcome it. I mean, they're mm -hmm. looking for people to make them more reactive, being able to move resources to where the problems are much more aggressively. These are the things that would broadly appeal to executives. And they'll basically say, wow, I've been looking for somebody to tell me how to do this for years. Uh, and yet, you, you say you can make this happen, and then you execute it. And now all of a sudden they're realizing but how to take advantage of this thing you're giving them. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes you hit executives who are like, yeah, this is just another snake oil salesman. Uh, I've heard this story for the last 40 years. I, I'm not gonna believe it this time any more than I believe in the last 40 years. And those sort of clients you sort of walk away from, they're not ready. Uh, yeah. you, you're basically gonna do something that's never gonna last. Uh, I wanna spend my time a little more productively. And, th and that there's a, another interesting thing there is that you've also got executives, but in a larger organization, there's a whole load of other roles that might act both as enthusiasts, but also people who are putting their feet on the brakes. Um, and, and that's, I guess, where the idea of sabotage comes from. It's, uh, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's explicit. Somebody's very much marking their territory, defending their territory, but sometimes it's a little more passive aggressive. It's not obvious. Um, it's a little more obvious if you've seen it before. Um, yeah, of course. I guess there's the experience element there. Yeah, yeah. you can sort of see it, and, and just, they, they look like they think they're being subtle about it, but it's not subtle at all. <laughs> I mean, they're clearly not not buying into what we're trying to sell. Uh, but this highlights a really important and a really interesting thing: is that there are transformations that happen on PowerPoint, and those are always really easy because everything respects the basic rules of PowerPoint drawing and movement. Um, just like software architecture and architecture, they always respect well. Um, that's always an oversimplification. And then you throw people into the mix, um, which makes it inherently complex. Um, and I noticed this morning you were also talking about the um, uh, Kenevan model as a way of trying to understand the spaces in which the work happens. Um, and this idea that a lot of what we're dealing with is kind of complex to chaotic, but many processes are actually in the, I guess, the simple or obvious and complicated space. Now, that, that, there's a mismatch there. Um, well, it's kind of a double mismatch. So even if the problem you're trying to solve is a, is a more you know, complicated problem, more traditional, software development itself is complex. Uh, it's unpredictable. If, if it was already existing, we just used it off the shelf. So yeah. every, every time we write some new code, you're, writing, you're innovating. Innovation just cannot be scheduled. And that's kind of the conflict between the idea of deadlines and processes that, that look, look you know, nice on paper, but versus what can actually happen in reality. So basically, you're continually managing a beast uh, as yeah. you go through this process. And you sort of need that explore and, and sort of watch the results sort of capabilities. And so, you know, typically I use metrics like continuous flow diagrams mm. to reflect this is how fast this team is working today on this problem with these people. And it could change tomorrow, but that's going to be reflected in, in basically what we finished. Yeah. So rather than getting caught up into estimating when things are going to happen, we just record what we've done so far. If you want to project a trend, you can go for it. Uh, but again, it's an unpredictable process. Fortunately, statistics kick in at a certain point, and once you get to a certain number of stories with a certain number of team, you do hit sort of a very predictable flow. Yeah. Uh, and now you begin to get comfortable that here's when it can finish or here's where our problem is going to be. You can discover that fairly quickly. So there's kind of a, an emergent, so potentially depending on the team and the nature of the work, you might find that something shifts from a complex to a more complicated um, uh, kind of domain um, as things unfold or at least 
your perception of it uh, shifts. At least, at least the predictability of our project come, becomes out, yeah. becomes to the forefront because now we've done the key, especially if you sort of do what Ken has always preached, you drag the, drag the risky stories to the beginning of the project, bleed the risk out of the project as soon as possible. Then, then you get predictable. If you kind of do the easy stuff first and leave the hard stuff for later, hoping it will get easy, then you wind up being this green, green, green project that certainly goes red and misses the date. Um, so yeah, the, the, that's an interesting way of looking at it, the, the idea of, of the, the, the volatile, risky elements. If, if you can address those, those will tell you much more about what you can do now, but also probably what will follow. Which kind of interestingly suggests that there's a much more, uh, I, I guess, um, dynamic approach to kind of looking at how um, a development will unfold. Probably more dynamic than um, many, many managers are prepared to take. In other words, people like a, a more static, predictable structure. Even if it's a work of fiction, it still gives a certain sense of comfort, whereas what you're actually offering here is basically, oh, you get the, some of the predictability will emerge later. It's the idea of like, let's keep doing this until such a point happens. When's that point gonna happen? I can't tell you yet, but we hit a critical mass, which is a very different kind of um, relationship. It feels, I don't know, it feels a little more, you know, um, uh, it is very grounded in innovation, but if we look at other disciplines, it feels more like sailing than it does like um, uh, software development, uh, or rather the product version or production-oriented version of software development. And I think that may be why I kind of enjoyed the beginning of these projects like this. Um, I kind of like living in the sort of the, the sort of the, the fuzzy part of the world, the, the complex part of the world. Uh, that's where I enjoy. Uh, when it gets predictable, I get bored. But also, I guess when it gets predictable, is that the point at which potentially other, uh, you know, the, the organizational's um, its older attitude might reassert itself? Um, is, is that where complacency might set in or, uh, you know, we've well, done the changes? A little bit because to some degree if we've done a proper job of bleeding the risk out early, it, it gets a little more predictable. Um, so you can sort of see when things are probably going to happen. Um, but also, you've, we've sort of overcome the initial inertia of working in a different style. The style has been established. Um, yeah. And now my contribution becomes basically another good programmer, not, not somebody who's you know, basically building the right processes and making sure we've got the right team. Those sort of aspects of my job are done. Um, now I'm just a valuable programmer. Um, so that also suggests there's a kind of like a, an interesting lifetime thing here. It's not just that you know, processes are emergent and bound to their context, but they're also bound to their time, as indeed is our particular roles. And I think oh, yes. that's, that's, um, that's interesting. I, I, and I think leadership shifts accordingly as well. That's why I kind of always didn't like naming somebody as your tech lead. Um, the person leading a project at the early part is going to be more the application architect, the guy with the vision of what he wants to accomplish. These guys usually really suck at being able to get the code out the door at the end. Uh, you want to sort of have that shift in leadership accordingly. Um, I'm not that good at getting the code out the door. I'm really good at getting the application architecture started, the process, get the right people in the room, uh, get the right flow, get the, get the high satisfaction. Um, and now it's a self-sustaining entity. Uh, now, I, if, the problem is I'm gonna be tempted to tweak it again just to make it fun for me. And that's, that's <laughs> probably what I shouldn't be doing. Uh, I should be walking uh -huh. away at that point and letting the process go ahead and continue elegantly. So that so that's a, again a, an interesting thing is you know having affected particular change, then the what is demanded of the people changes 
yourself included. And oh, therefore, yes. there's that idea of like, okay, you know, maybe my work here is done or, you know, it's a, or I'm not the right person um, for this. But I, there's another aspect there about the, the emergence of roles and this very much more dynamic kind of view. And I've, you know, I've had a personal experience where I was slightly surprised where, you know, years after a particular project, sitting in the pub, one guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. as our architect, Kevlin, you and I kind of said, well, I was never the architect. I was, I was an external consultant, and I worked with you guys, and I did a lot of code and stuff like that. And I said, no, you were the architect. And it's just like, huh. If I'd been called that at the time, I might have walked out of the room. But it was rather interesting. That was clearly an emergent aspect. It's just like, oh, okay, with hindsight, perhaps I'll accept that title. But it was a surprise to me. Um, but perhaps that's a more normal thing. Titles emerge or roles emerge and then they subside later. And that's kind of what I want to set up the environment. So I've tried to make sure we don't designate that person ahead of time who's going to be, quote, the tech lead. Because um, he's going to be the guy that feels like he has to make the decision. Uh, I much rather try to train a leadership role where the philosophy of a leader is make sure a responsible decision gets made at the right time, mm. but feel bad if you had to make the decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and back to that idea of of mismatches. You talked about in impedance mismatch during the talk, and I was, I, I, I noted it down earlier as speed differential. In other words, different parts of an organization, but also how different roles might continue their previous practice, and that, then, then that collides. So for example, somebody who's a DBA might have a very different view, a traditional DBA might have a very different view of the relationship of an application to the database, and effectively they become, without intending to be, a bottleneck. Mm -hmm. And likewise, um, uh, UX, uh, UI and UX people, um, there's this idea, and I've always been surprised by it, I guess, uh, you know, the UX process, and I've always wondered, what is this? And it's this thing that is very, sequential and very bottleneck driven and that might accidentally although filled with good intentions that might that's that can actually upset the kind of the rhythm that you as it were a, a different flow and rhythm that you're trying to get to, from development yeah in that in that transformation or that impedance mismatch is a source of high conflict in most organizations um, I mean the UX guy doesn't want to give you any input until he's had a chance to really make sure it's right and of course he's doing a fuzzy problem Mm. What, what's the sort of right user interface for my users to do the following work activity? It's, a, it's naturally a very fuzzy, complex mm. problem. He's not even come up with the right answer the first time, yet yeah. that's what he's been trained to think he's going to do. And that when it comes up, it's right. And so you should do it this way. There's no question you can't question it at this point. It's also, we, we actually take a step back and actually go back to something you were talking about in terms of the, uh, the, the kind of more personal approach. That's actually quite a lot to demand of somebody. I mean, I think we do it with a lot of our job titles or for highly specific roles. Um, it's regardless of whatever else uh, somebody might bring to the table, when we tell somebody you are this person and there's a kind of expectation, you know, you have a process for getting it right, therefore that is the bit, and there's a huge expectation and pressure on an individual to get right what is, as you say, a fuzzy problem, something that is dynamic and emerges probably out of the group, probably out of everybody not knowing the whole picture, trying to find the whole picture. Um, but to ask one person to come up with the right architecture, the right UI model, the right, is a hell of a, hell of a pressure to place on somebody. Yeah, and I think we couch it in various vague terms like accountability. You're, you're gonna be, we're, gonna make your, we're gonna delegate responsibility, we're gonna make you accountable for these things, which is just a fancy way of saying, I wanna know who to blame when it goes <laughs> wrong. Um, and so even that language has couched into it and creates fear. I mean, that's yeah. you know, one of the things we, we try to avoid in these processes is creating fear. 
because the fear stifles the innovation. It stifles the creativity of the individuals. They, they're hesitant to do the, do the right thing because it may be wrong and, and blame will flow from that. I mean, even GitHub calls it blame. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, it's gotta be the worst title associated with something that should be tagged something else. But yeah. who do I blame for this particular mistake? It's like, oh, this is not how you wanna think about the organization. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think particularly no matter what the uh, uh, the the irony or lightness that might have been intended by it, that gets washed away very very quickly, and that word just stands for what it normally means. Yep. Um, so there's so let, let me, let's tie back to kind of the names and terms of things um, and clarifications. I mean, one clarification I've already mentioned um, Kinevin and mentioned. Um, the chaotic domain, and it, it's worth clarifying, sometimes words have more than one meaning. By chaotic, it does not mean disordered, There's actually, that's actually something separate. It's more the um, uh, math mathematically chaotic. Uh, yes, it's deterministic, yes, there's cause and effect, but no, we can't really tell what it is. Um, is slightly different to, you know, this is a living hell and it's disordered and everything. Which also relates, interestingly enough, to the term programmer anarchy. I've mentioned it once, some people might not be familiar with it. And it's the idea, for some people they use the term anarchy to represent something distinctly bad and negative, whereas from a political perspective, anarchy has a much more precise definition. Um, and that is the one that you know, you're talking about uh, with programmer anarchy. Uh, and I think that's quite an important distinction and one that places us right back where we want to be. Yeah, basically the first definition of anarchy is basically a term who determines its own leadership, uh, organizes itself. Uh, and that's what we really meant by that. I mean, I, I was always sort of looking for a very controversial title to sort of convey the idea. Uh, again, get it clickbaiting to some degree um, with the term. And I took that as, from heart from Kent Beck's Extreme Programming, which was at the time when I was trying to sell my consulting services, calling yourself an extreme programmer, it was kind of like, well, they're already scared of programmers. Extreme programmers are really scary. So why would you want to hire an extreme programmer? Programmers are bad enough. Um, and so it was a little hard to sell the concept, but it got the, got the press, it got the clicks. Um, and so I was looking for something that described our process. Now we were working in strictly complex domains, mm -hmm. complex domains that had great feedback processes. You know, Google advertising, 20 minutes to get feedback, real feedback. And so you're basically in a complex domain with a great feedback cycle. And so, yeah, I don't know what to try, but I'm going to experiment like crazy. And that's yeah. what we were doing. We we're working in purely assorted domains. Yeah, so it's decentralized. So yeah, because there is no experts. And yeah. if there are no experts, then there's nobody to tell you what to do and how you, did you do it well enough and all these other things. The, the only real metric is, is success at the KPI level. What, did you get more sales, did you get more clicks, did you get more retention? Whatever the magic metric is. Um, so we, we are, I was fortunate to have that sort of domain to work with and, and then watch the programmers do some very weird things like not rate unit tests, not pair, do some other things that were just kind of crazy except it was working and trying to understand how that helped that. And certainly the Kinevin model uh, really helped explain why it was working for that sort of segment. But a lot of things I try also work in complicated domains, but I actually, this, the processes is radically different in that domain. Uh, so yes, we do still have stories in that domain. We still have card yeah. walls, we have the stand-ups, we have some of the ceremony around that stuff because it's useful for that sort of problem. Yeah, because that was the thing that I, I think uh, I noticed initially with the term programmer anarchy, I thought, hmm, this is like XP. Uh, a polarizing term, very provocative, invites questions, but also tells you that it, it, it's, it's a particular model that's intentional. Um, although it is in one sense without structure, it is entirely intentional. And you just described the nature of the domain that that thrives in. And that idea of 
constant feedback also leads to another thing, which is the, this idea of uh, the relationship of developers to the code and the longevity of the code. I think that's another interesting one. How long does the code last? Now, a lot of developers find themselves on code that will, has outlived them so far, I and mean, we actually see a generation of developers coming in now who are working on code, you know, particularly if we're talking Java code, the, the current wave of Java, uh, uh, Java graduates, as it were, are now entering projects that are actually older than they are, uh, ultimately, when we look back. But that that's not the whole of the software landscape. The software landscape is, is, is hugely varied. That in other places, you've got code with incredibly short life cycles. And that's what, as I understood it, you were focusing on initially, is that idea of like, actually, we could throw this away. Yeah, and this was, again, for the complex domain where experimentation is, is king. Uh, that competitive advantage accrues to the company who can experiment faster and get faster feedback. Um, again, we were doing Google advertising at the time in London. Um, Google was changing the rules all the time. Uh, this was constantly changing the rules, and he wouldn't tell you what the rules are. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of, again, you know, uh, sort of a blind game you're playing with, with Google. And so they would sort of make a change. We're going from three levels of feedback to 10 levels of feedback. Well, some of our competitors will say, well, we'll fix that in our systems in next quarter. We had it running the next week. And because we're having it running next week, we kill them for the next quarter. And of course, then Google changes the rules again. And again, we, we just dominate the market. Uh, and it's all because of our, our reaction time. Uh, they were constantly, we could experiment way faster than they could. So there's a kind of like a, at the heart of that, there is, a, there is a, 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 a kind of a very strong sense of responding to change. And you've actually jettisoned everything that might stand in the way of that. At yeah, the, at those and you kind see, of feedback levels. And you see that with day trading. I mean, the day trading yeah. houses always have had this. You take the programmer, you, a couple of programmers, you put them next to a day trader, and they form their little you know, cl club. And, and yeah, they made it, the programmer's not following the standards, they're not using the languages, they're not doing things according to the process of the institution. Um, but they're making the trader happy, and he pays their bonuses. So I don't care what the IT guys say. I'm doing it this way. And so you saw these clusters existing already. Um, we're just saying that more domains are like, like trading now than they, than they used to be. Yeah, that all, all the really interesting problems you make real money at are complex problems. You get standard, standard profit margins on complicated stuff, but there's extraordinary margins to be made if you, if you solve complex problems. So there's kind of like a healthy kind of way of looking at the software landscape, again, is being filled with all these different kinds of software, but actually that the balance has shifted, that there was a, as it were, there, there is, there's always been complex, but there was a predominant amount of complicated, but now actually where the action is, maybe the line has moved a little bit. More projects represent this highly dynamic um, uh, kind of space. Yeah, I would say we're still 90% in the more traditional spaces. Uh, yeah. But I would say at least half the profits are in the 10% at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's, there's, I guess there's multiple metrics here. There's number, number of developers, number of lines of code, but then there's where's the rate of change happening greatest and where is the, where's the money to be made. Um, again, looking at, the, looking at the space through different metrics will give you something very, very different and therefore suggest very different processes. So, so that, other, that other aspect there of Small pieces of code, that idea of throwing pieces, potentially throwing pieces of code away, because if you're working on these kind of life cycles, you're not really worried about long-term future of amassing unmanaged technical debt, because yeah. actually all the debt is written off pretty much the moment that it's created, which kind of leads to small things. And certainly from you that I first learned about 
microservices. And that world has gone in a very different direction over the last decade. Well, certainly the term has gone to a different direction. Uh, yes, yes. Um, because I think people have discovered that service-based architectures are, are the way to go. Um, and I think people are developing services in, at appropriate levels, for, especially for traditional problems. Yeah. They're, not, they're not the really tiny ones you need in the experimentation world. They're the sort of much larger, more meaty pieces that you need for a business world that's, where the business is well-defined. Yeah. So when I was working for the Norwegian Welfare Association, we were implementing the law associated with the sickness benefit. Well, we wrote the law as a module. It's a big module, it's a complex module. And we built it with lots of small objects, you know, it's, Lego, it's sort of a Lego-style build, but it's still a monster service in terms of its complexity and its capabilities. But the good news is the law changes very slowly, and yeah, once you yeah. model the law cor correctly, uh, this code is not gonna be under stress. Yeah. And we, we wired that to an event bus, and then we wired another component very similar to that. It says, here's how the case workers wanna work on stuff. That has nothing to do with the law, it's, it's the procedures the case workers wanna follow. Again, a very stable business process. Built a service around that. Still hooked it to an event bus. And then we had some microservices which are doing you know, sort, of the, sort of adapter jobs. And I need to take the, your, your decisions and push them off to the data warehouse. I need to make sure a decision is happening in a timely fashion. So I can so I have a little timer running in this guy who's just looking at the timer and saying, oh, is it time to go tweak this again or something should be happening but here. So we did some of those with microservices, but by and large it was a service architecture. Yeah. Um, so I guess what we're seeing is there's a, lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of things that are being called microservices that are just good old-fashioned services, but because that's the branding that is kind of stuck, and they are definitely not micro, um, and it's a bit of an abuse of the, of the term, but you're also tying it there to stability, that rate of change. The law is a much more kind of uh, you know, predictable and, well, I would say glacial, but glaciers are moving pretty fast these days, geological in its time frames by comparison. But there's an interesting contrast there, because certainly in, in kind of government-related work, let's go back a few years, the historical approach to doing or addressing what you were just describing would be, we need a unified entity model. Uh, whereas what you've explicitly described is, well, there's this bit, there's this bit. These are kind of decoupled. Let's keep them that way and let's organize it around the way things are done. What do they want to do with it? Rather than the, the more challenging philosophical question, it really is a challenging philosophical question, is what is the entity model for government and welfare? Which is a... a, a that's almost an unsolvable problem if you try and make it uh, consistent. Well, it's certainly a complex problem, and since it's a complex problem, it will defy definition. Yeah. And so you're almost doomed to failure as soon as you start. Yeah. You, know, you need to carve it into pieces that look have that stability, like the law, for example. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we were rewriting this application is because they did want to change the law, but the software is unchangeable. Yeah, the software is actually less changeable than the law. Oh, very, very much so. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, I want to change how this benefit works. Well, I'm sorry, the system won't support it. You can't make the change, but I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the government. I should be able to make this change. And no, you can't make this change. Uh, so that was one of our leading motivators for, for needing to rebuild it. But knowing that that was the stress point, we did build it in sort of this Lego style, where they, I have lots and lots of these little Legos running around, and if they want to rearrange them a little bit, it's not a big deal. We can rearrange them quite easily for them. Okay, so I think that we are at time. Um, so thank you very much, Fred, um, and I hope everybody's found that. Uh, useful. I would also very strongly recommend watching Fred's uh, talk in its entirety. Um, there are a lot of takeaway lessons um, that may be uh, things you can apply immediately or that you may find useful in the long term.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development. <laughs>